it's a joy and a privilege for me to be with you this morning. I want to tell you and begin with a story of a professor by the name of Hugh Smith, who back in 1935 was a long, long away from his home in Washington State. He was in a jungle in Southeast Asia. He was in a very small canoe-like boat or raft. He was studying nocturnal animals and was waiting at dusk for the nighttime to come and for the animals to come out. And so while he's there alone and his thoughts quiet, he looks out towards the horizon as the darkness descends upon the area that he's in. And all of the sudden, as if a lightning bolt had struck it, there was this flash from a tree that was in front of him. We might describe it as someone had plugged in a Christmas tree all of the sudden, and it began to glow, and it began to emanate, and it began to pulse on and off and on and off, and then eventually to disappear. It looked something like this that you might see on the screen here. He was absolutely enchanted by what he saw, and so he paddled closer in order to see if he could get a closer look. And what he found out as he got closer to the tree, that it actually wasn't the tree at all that was shining brightly, that it was actually all of these little creatures, these little lightning bugs that were all of a sudden working in tandem. That was what was remarkable. It wasn't remarkable that there were lightning bugs out there. What was remarkable is that somehow what was odd is that they were working together, that they were shining with one another. And so as he began to study this, he thought about how remarkable this finding would be as he could take it home. And so he began to write up what he had seen, what he had witnessed it. And when he got back to the United States, people didn't believe him. The mathematician said that it was statistically improbable, if not impossible. The biologist said that there was no evolutionary purpose for these beetles, these what we call today synchronous lightning bugs, in order for them to work in harmony with one another. The entomologists all said we've never seen insects behave in this particular manner. So he was mocked, he was ridiculed, and they dismissed his scientific findings. Eventually, he was vindicated. In fact, you could even explore and see this without going all the way to Asia. Apparently, there are some portions of the Great Smoky Mountains not too far from here where you can encounter this synchronous firefly and see them as dusk turns into evening light up the nighttime sky as they do it in a symphony together. We might call this kind of a, a natural example of what we refer to as Peachtree here as unexpected togetherness, that the gospel brings people together in surprising and unexpected ways, that there is this belonging that is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We believe that there is a unity to be found even in a world that is coming apart. And I know as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that the world is coming apart, you might be like, oh, there goes a preacher again. He's exaggerating for effect that every preacher, every leader is always like, this is the worst time and era. This is when everything is falling apart, but it never does. I am not exaggerating, my friends. I am not using hyperbole. I am saying something far more specific 
than that. The first job of a leader is to define reality, and today's going to be a very different kind of message. This is like the first semester, kind of first day of your first semester for this course. Today's going to be like getting your syllabus today. And so I want you to bear with me as we do a little social science together before we read the scripture. Are you excited? I can totally tell. There's a guy by the name of Mark Dunkelman who's written a book called The Vanishing Neighbor. And in this book, he chronicles the different ways that we now relate to one another that we didn't use to relate to one another before. In other words, when we moved from a primarily agricultural society to an industrial society and then into the digital age, that we didn't go through these transitions without significant differences in the way that we now connect and communicate and relate to the people around us. The typical way that people related to one another was like this, he says. You have your close friends and family in the middle. You have the people that you're familiar with. They're your friends. These are the people that were in your tribe. They were in your village. These are the people that you knew well, shared life with. And then you had on the outside of that, you had people who were acquaintances, your network, and then beyond that, you would have strangers. And what Dunkelman is saying is that because we are living in today's frenetic pace and with today's technological tools, this roadmap is drastically changing And these three concentric circles now no longer look like this. They look like that. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. When my wife and I uh, got married in the dark ages 20 years ago, what would typically happen on a typical work day is that I would kiss her goodbye. I would go to work. She would go to work. If we had to, we might call our office phones if we needed to touch base on one thing, but then we would reconnect at the end of the day. But now that this has been invented, one of the things that happens is that my wife and I are now in constant contact all throughout the day. We're texting back and forth. We're staying in communication and in relation with one another, even when we're in two different places. Here's how this makes such a big difference. Imagine you're at the grocery store, you're at the grocery store, and while you're there, there's a line for you to go through the checkout. What's the first thing you do when you all of a sudden get to that line? You pull this out, right? You are no longer doing what we used to do, which was to actually communicate with the people around you, to actually talk with the people that you were at the grocery store with. So what's happening in today's day and age with this technology is the advent of this technology is enabling us to communicate with our best friends and our family members more and more. We're spending a greater percentage of our time with our closest friends and family, and at the same time, it also enables us to connect with our extended networks like never before. So you can stay in touch with your friends from college or from high school. You can stay connected with the people that you follow or the people that you share particular ideals with that you may not even know in person, but you know out there in social media. What's happening, my friends, is that what they call middle ring relationships, the village, the tribe, all of that is starting to disappear And we are now being reduced to people who hang out with our close friends and family, and we interact with our social network, and everything else is falling away. You might be asking yourself, 
Yeah, but what's the big deal? Why does this really matter? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. I want to go back to the early part of the 20th century in New York City to the diamond industry that was particularly dominated by Orthodox Jews who worked in Manhattan but who lived in other parts of the city. And they went to the same synagogues and their kids went to the same schools and their overlapping circles kept them very tight and connected with all of these different families together. When you were going to hand over your diamonds for somebody else to buy or sell in terms of a form of evaluation, you didn't even necessarily need to count those diamonds or to chronicle those diamonds before you handed them over. There is no way that one of them would have taken one of your diamonds. There was too much at stake. You knew each other so well. All your families knew each other. Your rabbi knew you. All of your life was so interconnected in all of those different interlocking circles that you had a high degree of trust. If you were to go to the diamond industry today, that trust is no longer there. My point is this, when middle ring relationships go away, you have eroded the fabric of society of social trust. We have no ability to be able to blame the politicians for the rhetoric of today. The politicians are only reflecting the fact that we have pushed away the very practices and natures of relating to one another that gave us the foundation for being able to have these messy relationships where we learn to interact with people who were different than we are, who thought differently than we are, and so we are living in an age where all of that quite literally is coming apart. And here's where this gets really interesting for the church. The church is primarily, at its core in American Christianity, a middle ring activity. It is not like all of a sudden the gospel has become irrelevant, that people no longer believe in God. It's the fact that church, kind of like the Kiwanis Club and the Rotary Club and the Junior League and all of these different middle ring organizations, village-type organizations, all of those organizations are falling by the wayside in favor of close intimates an extended social network. And because of that, that is why the church is shrinking today. I told you we were going to define reality. We believe as your leaders in the church that there are three key invitations. We determined this last year for all of us at Peachtree, that we are going to behold, belong, and become. Will you say these three with me? Behold, belong, become. And what we mean by these three things is that we are going to behold in worship, we are going to belong to a community, and we are going to become on a journey. Behold in worship is quite evident. We're going to talk later about becoming on a journey. Today, I want to highlight for you that middle step of belong to a community. And what we mean by this is not that everybody, what many people assume in most of American Christianity, particularly larger churches, is that we want you to join a small group. That's not what we're saying. We actually want you to belong to a mid-sized group. We want to do a revolutionary, counterintuitive thing where we want to reclaim the space of social trust, and we want everybody who's a part of Peachtree to experience the potency and the joy of what it means to belong to a particular mid-sized community of somewhere between like 30 and 80 people. And I wish that I could show you a picture. I wish I could 
give you a snapshot probably in the same way of what Hugh Smith probably did back then. But before we give you that snapshot of the best thing of what community looks like, I want us to go on a little journey of, to test your knowledge on how many of us you think are in community here at Peachtree. So we've actually done surveys and we've actually teased this out. I want you to turn to somebody next to you. What percentage of people who are a part of the regular worshiping attendance of Peachtree are in a belong mid-sized community, a men's community, a woman's community, a Sunday school morning kind of adult community? What percentage of people are in a mid-sized community. Turn to somebody next to you and see if you can guess. The answer, the answer is 30%. Now, here's what's interesting. That's 30% of our regular adult worship attendance. That is not 30% of the 7,000 people who publicly identify with Peachtree. That percentage would be far smaller. This is 30% of you who are generally here on a particular weekend. That means 30% of you are currently in one. We have learned that 40% of you used to be in a mid-sized community of some sort in and through Peachtree, but are no longer in one. And 30% of you who have never before. What we're hoping, what we're dreaming, what we are anticipating and longing for this year and in the couple of years to come is that we would love for that 70%. For those of you who no longer have a village, a tribe, a group of people who know you, who love you, and who care for you, that you can share life with in a mid-sized community. We want that to be true for every single one of us. So in short, we want to renew the sense of belonging that can take place in and through this church. And it's going to be a little like a little form of cultural jujitsu because it's going to feel a little bit like you're going to have to use the force of the world that's a countervailing force in order to make this actually work. This picture of what it used to look like didn't start in American Christianity. It started a long, long time ago with the early church. There's a picture that I can't put up on the screen, but it's a word picture that the disciple, physician, then apostle Luke who was writing the early history of the church, said this in Acts chapter 2. He said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, that everyone was filled with awe at the signs and the wonders that the apostles were performing, that all the faithful were together and that they had all things in common, that they even sold their property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need, that every single day they continued to meet in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and generous hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all of the people, and that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is what we might refer to as the unexpected togetherness of Christian community. And regardless of what kind of community you're a part of, we think that there are things to be discovered in there. That one of the things that happens is that you notice in that passage that it's all, 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 every, 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 any. And so this was an inclusive kind of community that was drawing people closer towards one another. 
And so this is taking place in Acts chapter two around Pentecost. People came from different places. They spoke different languages and yet they had a common understanding in the spirit of God. They had a common purpose in Christ. But the word besides all that repeats over in this passage is the word together. And there's four particular togethers that jump out in this Acts chapter two kind of community that we want to resurrect in our time and our age that they ate together, they learned together, they shared together, and they prayed together. Let's talk about each of these ever so briefly. First, that they ate together with one another. Earlier this week, I joined on your behalf the downtown Rotary chapter of Atlanta. This is not my first time of ever joining a, a Rotary club. It's kind of an eclectic group of business and different not-for-profit leaders. And the one thing that they know at Rotary, which is a classic middle ring group, the one thing they know is that you have to require attendance and that secondly, you have to eat together. And so once a week, the Rotarians gather together in order to sit around tables in order to engage in leadership fellowship with one another. There's something magical, there's something special that happens when people eat together. It's one of the primary activities of the church. It's something that Presbyterians used to be known for that we don't necessarily do as much anymore. The old joke is that where two or three Presbyterians gathered together, a chicken died. <laughs> that that was what the expectation was, is that we would get together and we would eat. It's one of the things that we are rekindling here at the church. I don't know if you noticed in the church announcements that we're bringing back the Sunday morning brunch. Can I have an Amen. So we're going to have, we're going to walk before we run. We're going to start once a month and bring you back a time where you're going to eat with people you don't know and, and they might be a different generation or a different race than you. And we're going to do this messy eating together thing so we can start to get in fellowship with one another. It starts with eating together. And then the second part of unexpected togetherness that took place in the early church was that they learned together. They studied together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I live in a house with all women. I am outnumbered, and so I have no moral authority when it comes to the remote control in our home. I don't often get to choose what's going to be on TV. What my family is obsessed with right now is this TV show, The Great British Baking Show. And so... Mom and the girls, they get together and they watch the show. This is not what I want to watch. I want to watch things blow up. I want to watch spies in foreign countries. I want to watch golf balls and footballs and flight. But we're watching baking shows with people with British accents. <laughs> Publicly, I ridicule them for this, but secretly, I love it. I admire it. Not because I particularly like the show, but because of what happens around that show. That they'll stop, they'll talk about it, they'll say, oh, I didn't know that. And that at times they even pause what they're doing and they go into the kitchen and start to create something. They see this show as an opportunity to learn. Oh, that we had that same kind of carnivorous learning as we approach the gospel and God's holy word, that we would see it as a master class. The most vibrant communities are the ones where you learn together. 
In fact, my favorite community from this last year was being with a community of people that was multi-generational. There were adults and there were teenagers in it. And we read through this year the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis and how great it was to be in a learning community together. The other thing I really liked about my family watching the Great British Baking Show is that they're baking more often and I get to eat the beautiful fruits of their efforts. So it's all synergy. They ate together, they learned together. They ate together, they learned together over and over again. But these are the qualities of what it means to be the church. You eat together, you study together, you learn together, you grow together. But you also share together. Did you notice in the passage that they even sold their property, their possessions, in order to be able to help with someone else who was in need? I have a theory, and here's my theory. My theory is that people don't serve more, and the reason that they don't serve more has nothing to do with a lack of compassion. It has to do with a lack of community. That if people actually were in deeper community, they would actually serve more generously and more mercifully. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Um, this last week, I met with the head of the Firefighters of Atlanta Foundation. We have a strong relationship in this church with the Policeman's Foundation, the policemen, as well as the firefighters. I've served as a police chaplain. I have a strong affiliation and desire for those who serve and protect in our community. And I asked her, I said, is there anything that Peachtree can do for you that we're not already currently doing? And she goes, actually, do you know what our greatest need is right now? She said, we need communities to adopt our fire stations. Some of them are not in very good shape. Some of the conditions in which the men and the women who serve for long periods of time, they have long stretches when they're there. Being a firefighter is mostly long periods of tedium followed by sheer terror moments. And the rates of depression and anxiety and suicide are skyrocketing for firefighters in the United States. She goes, it can be an isolating thing to be a firefighter. And we need communities that will adopt and will love our fire stations. If I were to come to you individually and I were to say, hey, Jim, here's what I need you to do. I need you to adopt this fire station. You'd probably think, whoa, 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 pastor. I'm overwhelmed. But if you had an army of 50 Christ followers behind you in your adult Sunday morning Sunday school, you wouldn't hesitate because you knew that you were in a community that could do that together. Another example of this, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Malawi with a, a team of people from the church, got to meet this young man by the name of Bornaventure. He was sponsored as a high school student, which is fairly affordable for an individual or a family to do. Costs about $250 a year to support a high school student there. You have to pay for high school in Malawi. That's why they need the support. Otherwise, they can't go. But Bornaventure, if you really want to change a community, if you really want to change the trajectory, not just of an individual, but a family's life and a village's life, send them to college. And that's a lot more expensive. That's about $2,500 a year. And if I came to you and I said, hey, here's a student and he's got great potential. Would you sponsor him for college? You individually might be pastor. I don't have that kind of income. But if you knew you had an army of 50 people in your men's ministry behind you, you wouldn't hesitate, would you? You'd adopt, you'd sponsor that student because you know you're in community. And so when we're in genuine community, the unexpected togetherness of the gospel, we experience eating together, learning together, sharing together, 
and praying with one another. Praising God, petitioning God, caring for one another, our whole lives, not just our souls. Back when I first graduated from seminary and I was working for Vic Pence in Houston, Texas, he asked me to start a young adult singles community. And we started it and we got it going off the ground. And while we were building that community, there was a young woman, a young professional who traveled a lot from work. Her name was Tracy and she was traveling in one of those airport shuttles from the remote parking lot to the terminal. They were doing a lot of construction along the side of the road and a piece of construction equipment went out into the road. There was an accident, the smashing of glass, and eventually Tracy lost her arm. They had to amputate. It was a horrible moment. But in the midst of that tragedy, there was a community of about 60 people that rallied around Tracy unlike anything I had ever seen before. There were meals, people were there to take her to the doctor, people were helping to advocate for her at work, helping her with the medical expenses. There was just, there wasn't an aspect of Tracy's life that they weren't involved with. It was a beautiful thing to behold in the midst of something so dark and so sad. I can't imagine what Tracy's life would have been like without that tribe, and I can't imagine that tribe without holding Tracy's hand and praying with her. They ate together, they learned together, they shared together, they prayed together. This is the origin of the church. And so there are four functions, gather, learn, serve, and care. And we've adopted a little phrase that we want you to help us out with because we also know that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is how we want to say it today. Gather, learn, serve, and care. Always fill the empty chair. Say that with me. Gather, learn, serve, and care. Always fill the empty chair. Say it again like you mean it. Gather, learn, serve, and care. Always fill the empty chair. Do you want to be a part of a community like that? Because I do. I want to be a part of not just a public identity with a congregation. There's 70% of you in attendance today that statistically are not a part of a community like that. And if your life ended up like Tracy's life, you wouldn't have that kind of fellowship because you have to cultivate that. It doesn't happen by accident. I want to close with this. Last summer in July, down in Panama City Beach, there was a mom, a family, hanging out with her two boys, playing, having a good time, and, you know, doing one thing, and the boys are playing in the water, and then you pay attention to something else, and when she looked back up again, all of a sudden the boys were not where they were supposed to be, that they had gotten caught in a riptide, and they were being taken away from the shore. The mother frantically went out to try to save them. Other family members came in order to try to save them, but each of them got caught in the same current, starting to be taken away. 
The beach began to mobilize and 80 people began to lock arms and to reach out in a remarkable chain of humanity and love. And all six of them who had gotten drifting away were saved. The mother said this, I'm so grateful these people are God's angels that were in the right place at the right time and owe my life and my family's life to them. Without them, we wouldn't be here. Our challenge today is that I don't think that that type of community is supposed to be a spontaneous moment in time. I think we're supposed to live that way all of the time. Locked arm in arm with a community of people that's big enough to dare, small enough to care, with the rescuing, saving purpose of Jesus Christ in our hearts. My friends, the dangerous currents of evil and sin and brokenness in the world will threaten to take us all. And without a sense of community, people will be lost. And I believe that if we can cultivate that kind of community here, in and through Peachtree, that we will shine like stars in the nighttime sky, that people won't believe it, they'll be skeptical, they'll say it's not really possible. But I firmly believe that God can pull all people together to be a part of a community. So let's pray. Lord, we have forgotten how to relate to one another. We've forgotten what it means, what it takes to be together, to gather, to learn, to serve, and to care. And so I pray that you will inspire us over the course of the next couple of months to be forming, to be reforming, to be creating new and renewing communities and a sense of belonging here in this church. Lord, I pray for the person right now who feels a deep loneliness and knows that they're trying to do life all by themselves. Lord, will you convict us to take steps, to cultivate and to find and to explore this kind of community together. Thank you for your spirit already moving in our midst, and we pray all of these things with great anticipation as the church's one true foundation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.